0: Well, thank you again for having me here this weekend and this morning. You've been very gracious and kind, and your feedback's been positive. You've kept the negative stuff to yourself well enough, so I didn't know that you didn't like it, so I appreciate that. That's always generous. I appreciate Scott and Laura being generous hosts for us this weekend. It didn't occur to me, I was doing some math this morning, that I've actually known Scott. I met him when I was 18, I think, and I'm 36, which means I've known Scott half of my life. I don't know which half was the better half, now that I think about it, but it's been good to have known Scott and Laura as long as we have, and to have this relationship that we do. Um, Would I be correct, would I be mistaken, uh, if I said that you folks here in South Texas know something about floodwaters? You're familiar with that and and the consequences of it? Imagine for a moment, uh, my topic this morning is hope, Okay, so everything that we've been talking about this weekend, about living in a secular age, has a tendency to fill you with a little bit of despair. If the world's gone mad and we're just stuck living in it, what do we do? But that's not the right answer. So let me instead give you a little parable. Imagine, if you will, that you live in a world of frequent floods. You live in a town that has just nearly nonstop flood. Maybe the whole country does non-stop floods every so often everything just washes away and nobody seems to know what to do about it and so somebody very clever says i know the answer we need to solve this the the city government's going to get involved concrete we're going to put concrete down the embankment and kind of control where the water goes right we're going to build up the levees and so forth and the flood waters come and they roll over the levees and they come down and it doesn't do anything so they said you know what we need more concrete and so they start pouring concrete over the whole town, and they start building drains and funneling the water in different places. And everything's covered in concrete, and it doesn't do anything. It still floods. In fact, the concrete doesn't absorb water very well, so the water just stays there longer, and we get more floods. And so the guy says, hey, you know what the pollution is? More concrete. And they go down to where the water's coming up. They go down to the springs and to the places where the water gathers in the rivers, and they concrete everything. So there's no place for any water to go anywhere how do you suppose this works you can kind of guess what happens next the water's coming folks i mean there's no way you can't keep the water down the spring is bubbling up and eventually i mean for a while sure that works you've really kept it all at bay and there's no water coming but eventually the water's coming Only this time, it's going to be more violent than ever before. It's going to bubble up through and underneath the concrete and burst things and make a terrible mess of things, and before long, you start to think of water as the enemy. What I want to suggest to you is that that is very much like the world that we live in. Somewhere in our past, human culture had some bad experiences with religion and spirituality. There were some people who, in the name of religion, did some awful things, and it's happened a lot through the years. Sometimes some of the worst things that have happened in Western civilization have been done by people wearing or carrying crosses. And that's, that hurts. And so somewhere along the idea, we, we got the idea that maybe we could fix that by cutting ourselves off from spirit, from spirituality, from religion. That maybe religion was in fact the problem because sometimes it overflows its banks and washes civilization away. And so for a 500 year campaign, we've been slowly pouring more concrete and creating distance from the state, from the culture, from the individual human life and trying to get the waters of spirituality further from us so that we can be safe. What happens when we do that? The water's still coming. Right? It's still there. You can't actually get rid of it. The difference now is that it's kind of breaking up through the surface in unpredictable and violent expressions. I think if you look in our culture, you see a lot of this. Uh, New Age mysticism, there's a resurgence in that kind of very hyper-superstitious mysticism and, and interest in the occult. Uh, I think those are examples of people craving spirituality, who are looking for more to life but don't know where to find it because we've poured concrete everywhere and turned to odd places. I think Islamic extremism is an example of people who look at American culture and all they see is commercialism, secularism, sin, evil, and vice, and they say, well, we've got to do something about that. And you get a radical, violent response from that particular version of Islam as a result of some of that. There's a reason they hate America, and some of, not very much, but some of what they say about us is true, right? That we are not a particularly holy and righteous people over here, and so they say, we'll fix that, we'll kill you. Well, again, that's a violent expression of a craving that's been concreted over. Uh, psychological typologies, if you're, if you're on um, Facebook, like folks tend to be, there's really a lot of interest in like personality type tests right now. And don't get me wrong, I don't think there's anything wrong with them. I think they're very interesting. I think they're very fascinating. I'm not a psychologist, but I, you know, I dabble in it enough to be dangerous. And I, I think it's very interesting to see what kind of personalities people have. And, and uh, there's the Enneagram and there's the, the Myers-Briggs and there are all kinds of different personality tests. And people want to know which, which Disney character they're most like and which, you know, the, there are all these different, what are we trying to do? We're trying to give some kind of pattern and meaning to human life because the cold reality of our culture has kind of stripped us of that. Uh, Minimalism is another example. My wife and I I love the minimalism movement. We've been involved in it a little bit. Minimalist is, is this idea that we have too many possessions. And that we need to kind of divest ourselves of possessions and make our lives simpler because we need to have more experiences and so forth, right? So you get this kind of decluttering movement and people getting rid of things. And I think that's a wonderful initiative. It sounds very Christian to me in many ways. But when I read some of the literature about it, the people describe the reason they're doing it is because they're looking for meaning. They feel like the clutter in their house is preventing them from having a meaningful life. The stuff that they have to work for. They get a job to get stuff, and then they get a job to take care of their stuff. And then they, well, they have too much stuff, and they want to get away from their stuff. So they get another job to take a vacation to get away from their stuff that they got to take care of their stuff, right? And so there's this life empty of meaning, and people are trying to reimagine what to do with their possessions. And so You see a lot of different trends in our culture. And what I want to suggest to you are that these are all pursuits of meaning in life because our culture has slowly poured concrete over all the sources of meaning that should exist. Then the sermon was supposed to be about hope. I'm not feeling very hopeful yet. Just stick with me. We're going to get there. There was a survey done here recently, and the question, uh, one of those statements, do you agree or disagree? And one of the statements was, I am more spiritual than religious. And three out of four millennials agreed with that statement. People born between 1980-ish and 2000. Three out of four said, yeah, that sounds like me. I find that to be very hopeful. Because what that means is, no matter how much concrete we've poured, no matter how much of a mess we've made of our culture, there are people who recognize the need for meaning in their life and simply have not found a source of it. You see? They look at the established religion and they say, well, I don't want that. Okay, uh, that's something we need to talk about. But they say there is something more to life than what I've been told, and I am personally in pursuit of that. I'm more spiritual than religious. That to me is encouraging. Because that's the way the human life is supposed to work. If you listen to me preach very long, I can't go very long without a C.S. Lewis quote because that's the way it's supposed to be done. Anyway, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there What we are seeing in our culture and what, if you'll stare at it a minute, gives me a lot of hope is that we are seeing the unrest of people who have found they cannot be satisfied with the life they now have. We've done everything wrong in our culture we can possibly do and we're still making up new mistakes. But we have not been able to eradicate the deep, Human thirst for the divine, for transcendent meaning in a temporary life. And that is an open door for Jesus, if ever I've heard of one. Every human knows there is something wrong with this world. And that's, that's a beautiful fact when you think about it. You have never in your life met a single person who would tell you, I think the world is perfect just the way it is. Think about this a minute. When you talk to other people, what do you talk about? You wouldn't believe the thing that happened the other day, right? Nobody thinks the world is the way it's supposed to be. Now, none of us agree on what's wrong. Democrats and Republicans and this religion and that religion, and everybody's got a different solution. Probably none of them work but everybody agrees this is not the way it's supposed to be there's supposed to be more going on in my personal life than this it's a strange fact it really is again to make mention of c.s lewis he commented on this that he thought it was very strange if man invented morality why didn't we invent a morality that said the things we were doing were good instead humans constantly examine ourselves and say i'm not a very good person i make mistakes i do bad things where does that come from why do we have a moral compass that holds us accountable to a life we're not living but here we are none of us are satisfied everybody's thirsty everybody wants the world to be better folks that is an open door in our culture that the church is supposed to be responding to I want to turn you for a moment to John chapter 4, and John's going to be primarily my text this morning as I think about what we can do in the culture we currently live in, and how Jesus responds to a person who is very much on the fringe of that culture, okay? In John chapter 4, the passage Scott read for us a moment ago, we have this story of the woman we simply know as the Samaritan woman which mostly tells you everything you need to know about her, by the way. Okay, Uh, a Samaritan woman, let me just read you a bit of it. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. This woman is an outcast. In every sense of the word. She is as far from the source of life and fulfillment as a person you're likely to meet. Okay? First of all, she's a Samaritan. In the terms of eth- uh, ethnic worldview of the Jewish people, she is ethnically inferior. She's, she's not even good enough to be a Gentile. She's kind of a mutt. right? The Samaritans were a hodgepodge mix of all kinds of folks, including some Jewish heritage And they just, they were close enough to be Jewish to really not be liked by Jews, if that makes any sense. Samaritans were heretics. They knew just enough about the law of Moses to believe in some of it, it, but not all of it. Right? And so they wouldn't go to Jerusalem to worship, but they worshiped up on Mount Gerizim, and they had their own place. And they had all their own rules and rituals, and it was very different. Heresy. Very different from Judaism. This is a woman speaking to a man in a culture that uh, very much had different places for men and women. Jewish women did not speak to Jewish men. Samaritan women definitely didn't speak to to Jewish men, right? This conversation is not going to be happening. And the woman notices that, right? She notices, uh, you're speaking to me, and she thinks it's odd. She's not the kind of person a Jewish rabbi talks to. And furthermore, I don't want to read too much into the text, but I suspect there's even more going on. I think she's an outcast among outcasts. Now, not only is she a Samaritan, not only is she a woman, but also uh, she is gathering water by herself at about noon. Now, in the ancient world, first thing you did, ladies, start your day as you went down to the well with your pots and you got your water. And then you came back and you began the day's tasks. Okay. All the women went together down to get their water at the beginning of the day, except her. What kind of woman is not welcome at the well with the other ladies? What kind of woman goes to the grocery store when nobody else is around? What kind of woman is not welcome with the rest? I might be reading too much into it, but in John chapter 4, We find out later on this is a woman who has a number of romantic relationships, one after the other after another. What do the women around town think about the lady who has relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship, who's not married to the man she's living with now? Oh, we know who she is. Do you understand that this is a woman who is as far from an insider right, to religion As anybody you're likely to meet. And it's this person that Jesus speaks to and has this wonderful conversation. Let me read to you just a little bit, uh, beginning in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. So that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus turns an ordinary encounter, which is kind of, I say ordinary, an ordinary odd encounter. Can I say that? An ordinarily strange encounter into an opportunity to talk about deep spiritual need. And this woman had it. And he talks about water as kind of a metaphor or a thirst that she had for meaning in her life. She knows that her life is not the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus appeals to that. In the next little section, he asks, it sounds like, if, you, if you're not careful, it sounds like Jesus changes topics. But Jesus rarely does, by the way. When he, you think he's changing topics, he's still talking about the same thing he just makes you think he's going somewhere else in verses 16 and 17 jesus said to her go call your husband and come here and the woman answered "Uh, i have no husband jesus said to her you're right and saying you have no husband uh, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband what you have said is true and the woman said to him sir i perceive that you are a prophet I don't think that's a scene about just Jesus proving that he can see into this woman's life, although that's fascinating all on its own. I think there's something more going on in that he is revealing something that he understands about her that she may not have known about herself. And that is the thirst that she had, she has had tried to quench many times. She has turned to serial relationships to try to give meaning to her life. This uh, is an especially touching story because uh, in Glenpool, we do uh, some prison ministry in some of the Tulsa area correctional facilities, especially in some of the women's facilities. And one of the things, Bill Hamrick, who's uh, already, he's he's our prison minister. He's uh, forgotten more Bible than I'll ever know. He's one of those old veterans who knows what he's doing. And he goes in and he works with these ladies and they do correspondence courses and talk about how to build a new life. And when you get out, here are the good choices you're going to make and you're going to get started. He says, do you know what happens? He says, he's exaggerating, but he says every time. It's not every time, but it feels like every time. They go move back in with the same deadbeat boyfriend. They get into the same trouble. They get into the same mess and they end up back in jail again telling him, but next time I'll do better. And he says, I have such sympathy for them because they're looking for something to make their life better. And they keep turning to men and these relationships to do it. And he'll tell me, I just want to tell them, do you not know how stupid us men are? Do you not know that we can't give you the meaning of it? But there are men who think they can and will lead ladies to, get to believe that, to get what they want out of women. This woman has turned to relationship after relationship after relationship. Trying to feel the emptiness in her life. And Jesus takes this moment to point it out. He's kind, right? He's not condescending. He's not rude. Now you talk about love life and marriages and stuff. That's a good way to start a fight. Jesus is very polite about it. But he says, do you know what you've been doing? Time and time and time again and even now. There's a reason you're thirsty. Instead, Jesus offers Himself as the fulfillment of her deepest spiritual need. In verses 20 and following, He says, "Our," or she says, "Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship." Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What does he say? She says, she asks a question about worship. I do think she's trying to change the subject, by the way. Uh, he makes a point about serial relationships, and she says, I have a doctrinal question, right? I'm always suspicious of that, by the way. When I'm having a personal question with somebody, and they say, oh, by the way, preacher, I had this question. No, you don't, right? <laughs> means I was getting close to something you didn't want to talk about. But sure, we'll answer your Bible question. What do you got? So she says, uh, what about worship, by the way? You go to Jerusalem, we go to Mount Gerizim. What are we supposed to do? And he still pivots it back. He says, The key thing is spirit. We are more than, as we talked about in Bible class, we're more than brains and vats or meat robots. We're more than just what we have made humans to be. There is something transcendent that every human craves. And it turns out you find that when you turn in humility and worship to your God. God is looking for people who are looking for that. And God will find you. And she says, boy, I'd like to find that someday. One of these days, that man named Christ will come. And Jesus says, I that speak to thee am he. Right? I'm the one you're looking for. And this is where the fulfillment starts. i tell you why I love this story. is because it's a person who is as seemingly as far away as anyone could ever be from the meaning of her life who in a quick conversation comes face to face with it that gives me a lot of hope because when i look at a culture our culture i see that i see people who are all like this woman who are trying to find meaning and value for life everywhere sometimes in in good places but not great places we have a culture of activism and i'm really excited about that in a sense i'm glad people care about something i'd rather them care about something better than nothing But we get all involved in causes because we want there to be some meaning for our life. And we're thirsty. And we just don't know where to look. The fact is, everybody has got to live for something. And eventually we start to recognize that. What Jesus is telling you is that if it's not him, if he's not the thing, the thing you're going to live for is going to fail you. There was a great speech given, and and part of me just wants to stop now and play the speech for 30 minutes and sit down. A great speech given at Kenyon College. It was a commencement speech. You know, commencement speeches are notorious for being forgettable, right? That uh, no one remembers what the guy said. You have to have one. You know, everybody's got their gown and their caps on. It's graduation day. But Kenyon College that year got a novelist uh, named uh, David. I said Daniel. I think it's David Foster Wallace. But anyway, look him up. He's great. And uh, Wallace um, is a novelist. He is not a believer. I wanna make that very clear. He's not a person who is um, prone to great statements of faith, okay? Quite the opposite. He's your typical postmodern secular novelist, okay? But he gives this speech in 2012 at Kenyon College. And it's this beautiful insight into the human condition. And if you'll permit, I am gonna read a little bit of it to you. Um, It is, incidentally, called, This is Water, if that gives you a hint. And in the middle of it, he says, because there's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing, uh, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths, I think he's not really religious. He says, yeah, I get why people are religious. Or some other inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are why you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs and cliches, epigrams, parables. The skeleton of every great story, the whole trick, is keeping the truth up front and daily consciousness. Worship power And you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart. And you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone in the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it. But of course there are all different kinds of freedoms. And the kind that is most precious you will not hear much talk about. In the great outside world of wanting and achieving... The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being truly able to care about other people and to sacrifice for them and, to, and for each other over and over in myriad, petty, unsexy ways every day. I love that bit about the monster that chases you, that never allows you to have the meaning you look for. And what makes that more touching still, uh, Wallace his monster caught him six months after he gave that speech he committed suicide. Whatever it was I don't know which of those monsters was after him but there was something he was looking for in life to give him meaning and it caught him. And I love the beauty of his expression of what he's describing. When I look at our culture and I see its thirst for reality for meaning For transcendence I am filled with hope because I know there is only one source of that and I know who he is the other thing that gives me hope about this culture is that it's not any more lost than it's ever been this is a lie by the way that we tell ourselves we look at the world and folks with a little gray hair we're the worst about it we look at the world and we say boy and it's getting worse right Bad as it's ever been, right? And we convince ourselves that things are really bad now. But it turns out the world that exists today is not any more or any less lost than it has always been. And can I give you another story out of John quickly to make that point? In John, the previous chapter, John chapter 3, you have the polar opposite of the woman at the well. The woman at the well is as far out of Jewish normal life as a person could ever be. In John chapter 3, we have a man named Nicodemus. John chapter 3, 1 and following. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's pretty great. I mean, this is a guy. He's a ruler among the Jews, right? He's a teacher of Israel, a master of the law, a Pharisee. So, you know, he's a pretty good fellow. And he has the humility to come to Jesus in the middle of the night, who doesn't get caught, but okay, we'll let him slip on that. He comes to Jesus and he says, The truth, we know you're from God. Isn't the next sentence supposed to be the part where Jesus says, You're doing so well? You're doing great. You're a lot better than the Samaritan woman I'm going to talk to tomorrow. I mean, isn't that what's supposed to happen next? Jesus instead says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born, I'm sorry, I skipped a few verses. Verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. What does he tell Nicodemus? You're doing a great job. So good, you just need to start over. Just be born again. Just start all over. You're doing great. Nicodemus is your perfect insider and he is no closer to meaning and virtue and god than the woman at the well the church needs jesus as much as the world needs jesus the world of today needs jesus as much as the world as yesterday needs jesus that same deep rooted thirst is real and common to us all and that fills me with hope the world can't get worse Because once you need Jesus, that's where you are. Now we're just talking about variations on a theme. What's your monster? How are you deceiving yourself from the needs you have of Jesus Christ? It differs. It changes from culture to culture, to generation to generation, from person to person, inside the building and outside the building. But the insider, the outcast, every person, millennial, baby boomer, every person in every nation and every age, has needed Christ in the same way, and he responds with the same graciousness and hope to all these people. It's interesting that this is a story about thirst because Jesus is going to use those words one more time in the book of John. In the 18th chapter on the cross, he says, I thirst once more upon the cross. Jesus Christ thirsts so that you will never need to again. If you are a non-religious person looking to sex, money, or power to fill the need of your life, you will thirst. If you are a deeply religious person looking to moral goodness, generosity, or piety to fill the need of your life and not Jesus Christ, you will still thirst. But there is a person who dies on the cross in John 19 and 28 who came and experienced thirst so that we could have the substance and meaning of our life fulfilled in him. We only need to recognize who and what he is and what he means to us. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Lord our God, we pray to you and beg you to fill us with thirst. Do not allow us each and any day to be satisfied with what we find in the lives that we've constructed without you. Do not let us be content. Do not let us be satisfied. But ever hungry and ever thirsty, what has come to you for the fulfillment, and never thirst again. These pray, things we pray in the name of Jesus, your Son, the living water. Amen. If you need to respond to the gospel invitation, to the hope of the secular age and of every other age, I think it's probably custom for us to stand and sing, and as we do that, you may certainly come.